Would you please join me in a prayer? Well, Lord, as the psalm said, we praise you for your excellency and your greatness. You're a great God, and you condescend to reveal yourself to us. So I pray now as we think about the nature of the Trinity that you would help us, that you would grow us, and I pray as the preacher that you'd help me be clear. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in that call to worship, B.E. cheated, and he read the creed of Athanasius, so now he expects me to come up with better words than, than Athanasius. You know, uh, J.I. Packer in his theology says the doctrine of the Trinity is the most difficult subject the human mind will ever be asked to comprehend. I mean, so we're, this, this is, are you ready? I mean, you got you to gotta think here this morning a little bit. I'll try not to be too doctrinal, but we actually have to think about the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is how God has revealed himself in the scripture. So if you want to know God, you've got to come up. He's not going to change that to come down to our ability. He is the one who's infinite, and we are finite. Now, since the 1300s, the church in the West has recognized a Sunday as Trinity Sunday as a feast day to pay attention particularly to this important um, truth about who God is. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to give a brief history of the doctrine and then a concise definition of what the doctrine is, and then its implications for us. So those, those three things. So I want to start with a, a little bit of church history. You know, in the early days of Christianity, there was severe persecution for a couple hundred years. And there was not time to sit down and work through theology and really uh, wrestle with this. And once the persecution subsided and Constantine, the emperor of Rome, had become a Christian, there was time to start wrestling with these topics. And a major conflict erupted around what we now call the heresy of Arianism in Alexandria, uh, North uh, Egypt. It was one of the great schools of theology, and uh, lots of great minds came out of there. And a, and a very charismatic and gifted presbyter, a priest in the church named Arius, had been teaching that Jesus was actually a creation of the Father. In other words, that Jesus was not eternally God, the Son, but he was created. You know, we say he's begotten, not created in the creed, but Arius had been teaching this, and Bishop Alexander refuted him publicly, and it turned into such a big debate. Other cities heard about it, and Christians were starting to weigh in, and it was threatening to split the entire eastern half of the Roman Empire over this topic. And so Emperor Constantine, really newly converted, sent his bishop advisor down there to try and sort it out amicably, and when that didn't work, Constantine called for a council. He sent out to the entire Roman Empire for all the bishops of the church to come at the emperor's cost to a city in eastern Turkey called Nicaea. And they traveled there, over 300 bishops, and Constantine himself presided over this, somewhat presumptuous for a, a still unbaptized but newly converted Christian, and they began to have discussion. Now, many of those bishops brought other topics they wanted to talk about. And, and when the position was shared that Arius had been teaching, and let me, let me give you the motto, right? It, it was a, fa a multifaceted theological stance he took, but it boiled down to this motto. There was when he was not. There was when he was not. In other words, there was a time in history when Jesus did not exist. That was the motto of the Arian heresy, and Arius had been teaching this. He was trying to find some way to understand the incarnation 
and the uniqueness of the Son of God, and he landed in the wrong place. But he was really good at teaching and really good at preaching, and so he got a big bunch of people to follow him, and this motto, there was a time implied, there was when he was not, became um, this, this rallying point. Now, the problem was the church from the days of the apostles were worshiping Jesus as God. I mean, in our text today, from the Great Commission, it's the very last part of Matthew's gospel. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. That would be idolatry if he's a created being. And the church from the days of the apostles were worshiping Jesus as God. And here comes Arius in the 300s AD teaching that there was a point when Jesus didn't exist and he was created. This is a major problem, right? They're either heretics and idolaters, or he is a a heretic and blaspheming against God. So all these bishops are there, and only two parties in this Council of Nicaea were really interested in the Arian debate. But when Bishop Eusebius, Arius was just a priest, so he wasn't even allowed in the in, to speak and have a seat there, but there was a bishop who supported his idea. And when Eusebius gave this teaching, the entire council erupted with cries of blasphemy, heretic, you liar. And it got, and all of a sudden, everyone was interested in this particular topic. Whatever other issues they brought to the council of Nicaea, that became the topic. And so then they began to go through the scriptures to make the case for the trini- Trinity. However, the Trinity is... It's a doctrinal idea, and while it's throughout the whole scriptures, it's, there's not like one text. Maybe the one we just read from Matthew 28 is the best one because it says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's not one clear text to go to that says, see, the Bible says Trinity, even though it's everywhere in there. It's like the oxygen in this room. It's everywhere, and we presume it, but, you know, like, how, how, what points to it? So what they decided to do was come up with a creed which was the basis of what we now use every Sunday as the Nicene Creed, came, coming out of the Council of Nicaea. And they said, you, if you're going to be an Orthodox and a faithful bishop or Christian, you've got to agree to this. And the bishops that wouldn't agree to it were deposed and exiled. It's an interesting thing. They were deposed theologically by the church, but then the state under Constantine said, you can't go back to your city. So right away, church and state got mingled in that thing. But they this was so important, that's what happened. And to this day, we have the creed, which was developed further after more theological thought, but the creed called the Nicene Creed was started here in the Council of Nicaea. So I want to point out, Christians have huge unity around this, and not just Anglican Christians. Roman Catholics, Anglicans, the Orthodox, we all agree on the entire creed, all of us. Like the church is in huge unity over who God is. We fight on all sorts of other things, but we are clear about the doctrine of the Trinity. So that's a little bit of the history of it, and it's true even if we struggle to understand it. It doesn't change the truth of it. So what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, first of all, let me say, no one, especially not a monotheistic Jew in the first century, would have invented this in his mind, right? If this religion thing was all made up, Can you imagine how ludicrous it would be for monotheistic Jews to get together and go, hey, here's the idea. Let's have one God, but three persons, but not three gods, and then we'll go out and get a whole bunch of people to follow this religion. Like, there's no way this came from man. This is beyond us. And yet, this is the truth as revealed 
in Scripture and, frankly, in all of creation. There is only one true God who is one being eternally existing in three persons. That's the language of it. And so the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. And yet the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And yet each one is fully God. Who would invent this? Not, not us. So the 39 Articles of Religion, which is also in the back of your Book of Common Prayer, 500-year-old statement that the Anglican Church was using uh, then and through the centuries to define its theology, starts out with Article 1 on the Trinity, <clears throat> the nature of who is God. And um, <clears throat> Bishop John Rogers, the late bishop that just passed away uh, two years ago, I think, wrote an, an excellent commentary on the 39 Articles, and he summarizes the first article with four points. The doctrine of the Trinity can be summed up as this. The first point is this. God is one. The famous Shema, which is the word here in Hebrew, is Deuteronomy 6.4. Here, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. That's super clear. Monotheism, not tritheism, monotheism. There is one God. That's the first point. The second one is the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. We tend to think in parts. Okay, one pie cut into thirds, three parts. Nope, that's the heresy of partialism. Because Jesus is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God, and the Father is fully God, not one third of a pie. So that's the second thing. The third thing is the Father is personal, the Son is personal, and the Spirit is personal. And it's correct then to say there's one being existing in three persons. If you're trying to articulate this, English will fail you if you don't track with the creed. It's been thought out well. <clears throat> so we say, one being, three persons. And this is particularly important with the spirit, too, because you might think a spirit is an impersonal force or something, like Star Wars, the force be with you. No, he's personal. That's why the pronouns are not it, even though the noun is a neuter one in the Greek. It should be it. They intentionally do the grammar wrong, and they use the pronoun he, for the Spirit in the New Testament. Everywhere the Spirit's referred to, it is He, not is, is an it, because He is God. The Holy Spirit is God, fully God. So all three persons are personal. And then the fourth thing, so God is one, Father is God, Son is God, Spirit is God. All three are also personal. And then the fourth point in Bishop Rogers' summary is, the Father, Son, and Spirit are mutually interrelated to one another. This means they engage in joint action, they are simultaneously involved in your relationship with them, with him. See, even my language, I start going into three. and st it's, it's hard to do this. But think about this. In this text, right, Jesus has said, I'm going to ascend to the Father, and I will send the helper to be with you. And then he leaves them physically, ascends up into the clouds, and they can't see him anymore. And then 10 days later, as we talked about on Pentecost, the Spirit comes with, you know, tongues of fire and rushing wind and the power and all that stuff. How would it be true in verse 20, the last verse of the Gospel of Matthew, our text today, how would this make sense? And teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then he leaves them. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of this truth, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are mutually interrelated to one another and are involved in everything they're doing. Look at that little icon there, that triquetra on the banner. It's a triangle, and it's like interlaced. It, it picks up the, the unity and the trinity. God is involved in everything. 
that he's doing. So it's a false dichotomy to say, well, Jesus does only one thing. I mean, the Father and the Spirit were involved in his work on the cross and in the garden and his miracles. This is a, a, a helpful thing so we don't pull God apart into three gods to recognize that all three persons are involved in what God is doing. So in a nutshell, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. Of course, a lot more can be said about this. And keep in mind, the Trinity is through the entire Scripture. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, it says that in the beginning, God created, and he did it by what? His Word. So God the Father is there, his Word is spoken, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters. The three persons of the Trinity are there, but as I think it was Luther said, in the Old Testament, the house is fully furnished, but it's dimly lit. And the New Testament shines the light on, and then you can see all the furniture that's always been in there. Go to the end of the Bible. Go to Revelation 22, the very last chapter of your book. It says that there is a throne, and uh, there's a river flowing from the throne, and on the throne are the, are, is God and the Lamb, and the Spirit says, come. All three of them, right there. The three persons of the Trinity are right there in the very first chapter and the very last chapter of the Bible. All three are eternally existing and involved in the work that God is doing. So that's the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, some implications, okay? First of all, God is love. John, the apostle, writes in 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. One of the things that I particularly appreciate so much about the doctrine of the Trinity is the fact that God is a community within himself. The Father, Son, and Spirit all love one another and give glory to one another and have always existed as a community of persons. This might be bordering on heresy or, or uh, false thinking, but if they weren't three but just one person, in order to express love, there needs to be a beloved, the lover and the beloved. One might say he would have to have created something to then express his love for it. But because there are three persons, God is love. He is in a loving relationship within the Godhead, and out of that, the entire creation sprang. Not because he needed to create us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need us to give glory. That's always been happening in the Trinity. But his love is so big, it overflows. It, I can only surmise that we were created because God wanted to love us. We love him because he first loved us. God is love. This means you and I are created in the image of God. That means that we were made for community. We were made to love. That's why John says, if you don't love, you don't know God, and you're made in his image. So our, on our discipleship pathway that we use to help people in the church understand what we're supposed to do, the first box is worship. The second one is belong. It's essential that we figure out how to belong to a community. The body of Christ is a community of people with Christ as the head and we're his body. That means we're supposed to be interacting. We're supposed to have love for one another. It was one of the songs of the charismatic renewal. They will know we are Christians by our love. That's a, a sure way that the church points the world to God. They look in and they see the church loving one another and even loving their enemies and they go, wow, God is present there because God is love. So let me ask you this question. How's your community life at present? How are your relationships? Horizontally and vertically. How's your relationship with God? How's your relationship with one another? You know, that's a, that's a part of this sabbatical that Vestry's given me is to just go work on my relationship with God. To just tend to my own soul, to love him. 
instead of always be thinking about how do I help the church. It's a real gift. But God is love. Second, we need all three persons of the Trinity. We need to understand and to know all three persons of the Trinity. It might be tempting to go, you know, this three-in-one thing, it's blowing my brain. I'm just going to worship the Father. I'm just going to pray to the Father, our Father who art in heaven. I'm just going to do that. Now, the problem is, you look at the Father in the Scriptures, and you see a powerful creator, the one who gave the law. And remember, of course, it's not uniquely him doing it. All three are involved in all that they're doing. But we can become like the Pharisees, who were all about the rules, but they didn't have a redeemer. And it was about performance. And it was, it was basically, you'd become Jewish. You'd revert back to becoming Jewish if you only focus on the Father. And you'll be a Pharisee. But if you, and then you think, okay, well, Jesus is man, and I'm a man, so I, I can kind of understand that a little bit better. But if you only look at Jesus, you see an earthly example par excellence, and you think, I've got to be like Jesus. What's the bracelet say? What would Jesus do? Okay, I've got to live like that. But the problem is, you can't, and I can't. He was perfect, and the cross would make no sense if there's not a father whose wrath is being poured out against all ungodliness, and then the son comes as our savior, and you start to lose the cross. It doesn't make any sense, and you grow in despair because you can't live up to the example Jesus set, certainly not in your own power. And then third, if you're like, okay, well, I had an experience of God. I'm all about the experience. If you focus on the Holy Spirit, you'll become a mystic. It'll be about feelings. It'll be about what is God's power doing in my life. You know, and frankly, it becomes about you and feeling God and experiencing him, and you start to lose the missional thrust, the great commission to go out and to share the good news of God in Christ to the world for which God so loved that he sent his only son. It becomes truncated and confused, imbalanced. So we need all three persons of the Trinity in their unique roles of what they do. So God is love. We need all three persons. And then my, my final implication is this. God models for us servanthood and joyful submission. Our third quadrant on our discipleship pathway is serve. Worship, belong, and serve. We have a God who serves. Jesus did not come as uh, to lord himself over the people, but as a servant leader, one who puts on the towel and washes the feet. And this is how the Trinity is, where the Father, Son, and Spirit are all mutually loving and serving one another and delighting to do so. The, now, there is, a, there is a, a headship issue that's hard for us to understand, how the Father begets the Son. The Son is the only begotten Son of God. So the Father creates and begets, and then the Son, who is begotten, delights to submit to the will of the Father. I mean, we heard him in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me but not my will, but yours be done. I only say what I hear the Father say. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the Father, says Jesus. And yet, Jesus is fully God. And so, the Father begets. The Son is begotten and delights to submit to the will of the Father. And then the Spirit is sent by both the Father and the Son. And, and the order doesn't reverse. It goes in that order. And yet, there is equal dignity, there is equal respect, equal honor and glory within the Trinity. And so what does this do for us? Well, it handles the, the American authority problem or the Western authority problem that we have. We feel like we're not fully honored and dignified unless we're the head of whatever the thing is. 
We got to be the CEO. We've got to keep climbing the ladder to get to the top. We're always trying to get to the next thing so that we will somehow feel important. And we look at the Trinity, we look at God, and we see Jesus and the Spirit were equally as important, dignified, and glorified as the Father. And yet there's hierarchy within that. So we're able to joyfully submit. We can have full dignity, love, and respect without having to always be in charge. That's a gift to us, and it it takes a lot of burden off. So in conclusion, this is God. This is the God of the Scriptures, the God who's always existed, who has condescended to us to let us understand a little bit about him because he wants us to know him and be known by him. And so we have to take it on the terms that he's given us. But I think it's a real gift, even if we don't understand it. I actually kind of like that I can't figure God out because it means he's God and I'm not, right? So he's beautiful, even if we don't understand him. Now would you pray with me? Lord, I'm grateful that you do condescend to us. Lord, we've stretched our minds this morning to try and understand you, and we can't. Would you help us see how beautiful and good you are? Would you help us worship you as one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And it's in the name of the Trinity that I pray. Amen.